Good morning. So great to be here with all of you. Love your singing and your praises. So glad to be here on Easter week. Uh, I'm Lynn Kitchens, and I was thinking about Easter is just a few days away. And so I thought it might be helpful if we looked at a few ideas, if you're having people to your house, some Easter cake possibilities that you can make. So I brought some pictures. These are going to be cake pictures and pictures from women that made them in their home. So the first one is the Lamb of God cake. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I was on a retreat and they showed this, so I stole it. But yeah, that is what my Lamb of God cake would look like, the bottom one. Now, you might want to go the cartoon route and do a Pikachu cake. (laughs) Okay, the next cake you want to serve if you don't really like some of your Easter guests. Then you bring this out when you're ready for them to go home. This is the hedgehog cake. Okay, and then I added this one just because, you know, you see all those pictures of babies and they're perfect and they have their big bow in there. And so here's this one I thought was really fun. <laughs> I think the bottom pictures are the reality. <laughs> Sorry, that one cracks me up. (laughs) Okay, I want to talk about passion today, which is very fitting since this is Passion Week. But what does that mean, Passion Week? Uh, So I did a little bit of trying to figure that out. I wondered why the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday is called Passion Week. I found out in Latin, passion is passio which means suffering. And so this is the week that Jesus endured suffering that led him to a cross. But I also thought, why would he do that? Because he has a passion. He has a passion for you. He loves you. He wants to spend eternity with you. That's his passion. I've read this before from one of Max Lucado's books. There are many reasons God saves you, to bring glory to himself, to appease his justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty, but one of the sweetest reasons God saved you is because he is so fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you're the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and he chose your heart. Face it, friend, he's crazy about you. I love that. God's passion for us took Jesus to the cross. And so what does Jesus expect from us after he bore our sins? Passion. A passion for him. And it also involves a cross. Matthew 16 on your verse sheet. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. You know, the disciples would have cringed when they heard Jesus say that to them. Because they would know that by saying, take up your cross, that's a symbol of death. They would know that he was asking them to be committed to him, even to the point of death. He was expecting his followers to display a devotion that was a life or death devotion for him. And I started thinking about this, and I don't know about you, but I'm not going to die for someone that I'm not passionate about. And I'm not going to be devoted to someone that I'm not passionate about. So if we want to obey what Jesus says here, we want to be true followers of him, we have to get passionate. We have to grow a passionate heart for God. And we can't do that by legalism. Thinking my good deeds will get me to God. We can't do that by traditionalism doing behaviors, repeating them that have no meaning for us. We can't grow a passion for God by only seeking him on Sundays. We won't get a passion for God by just praying to him. Now and then, we will grow a passion for God by pursuing this passion that he has for us. And this means choosing to deepen our understanding of how deep his love is for us. This means choosing the disciplines that take us to his heart. It means becoming a pilgrim on a journey to God. And this is not a burden. This is a joy. Didn't you get that feeling when you studied this psalm? What a joyful thing. You know, the sons of uh, Korah that were singing these, probably, this psalm in the temple. I'm thinking they had big smiles on their faces while they were doing this. I love the joy that they had. Um, this is about God's people, this psalm. It's about God's people pursuing God with passion, knowing that in his presence they would get to experience his passion for them. This psalm is about getting to where God is. And that's what being passionate is all about. We can envision God's passion for us like mountains that surround us, that protect us. And in order to grow in our passion for him, we have to start climbing those mountains. And the psalmist gives us some insight in how to do that. First, we have to be prepared for our journey. If we're going to be intentional about growing passionate with God, we have to be prepared. It reminded me when I was working on this about a time I was greatly unprepared, along with a lot of other people. Our neighbors, the Casburns, um, are wonderful neighbors of ours. And they had foreign exchange students while my kids were in high school and hers. So one summer, we all saved up our money because we were going to go visit these foreign exchange students in Germany, mostly. And we first went to London. And none of us planned ahead to have a place to stay in London. And so I remember we just came out like we knew what we were doing, came out of the airport, <laughs> dragging all our luggage. I don't know how many of us there were. Let's see, four, like nine of us. And... Uh, got on the underground and went somewhere. We just jumped off wherever we thought sounded good. Then we just started wandering around London, pulling all our luggage. And it was one of those rare days in London where the sun was shining and it was hot. And I don't know, we'd been <laughs> just pulling our luggage around forever and ever until finally we were on this one street 
And I looked in front of me and it said, number one, Downing Street. Where Parliament meets. Here we are, these vagabonds with our luggage. Nobody else has luggage on this street. Everybody's in their suits and looking really good. And I'm standing in front of Parliament and I've seen Tony Blair looking out the window at us. Uh, We were not prepared, so we didn't get where we needed to go. We won't grow a passion for God if we are not preparing our hearts for the trip. So let's see how we can do that. Verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. We realize when we read this that the author of this psalm is yearning to go to the temple of God and it seems that he's been unable to do that. And we can't know for sure why. Uh, Maybe he'd been sick. Maybe this was during the exile. Maybe there was just a time he'd been banished or circumstances kept him from going to the temple. And so we see how much he yearns to go there from these phrases, my soul longs for This is translated, made pale like silver, meaning that um, the intense longing was depleted, pale like silver. My soul faints for, that means coming to the end of one's strength. My heart and flesh sing for joy. The heart is the inner man, the flesh is the outer man, the entire man is wanting to be with God. This is a man whose heart is prepared to meet with God. And you read in your homework in Deuteronomy, God commanded the Israelites to journey to the places of worship that he chose. Three times a year, they celebrated three feasts. I want to tell you what those are real quick. The first one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you can also write next to it Passover because those were done at the same time. Uh, This is the first month of the Jewish year, Abib. And this was in order to remember and remind them about God delivering them from Egypt. You can picture women in their, their kitchen cooking dinner and all of a sudden they're told, the time is now, we're leaving Egypt. God's delivering us. You don't have time for your dough to rise. So don't put leaven in your dough. We're out of here. This is the feast of the unleavened bread. So it, during that feast time... They would remove all the leaven from their bread for seven days from their homes. And it was called, the bread was called the bread of affliction because it was to remind them of their slavery days in Egypt. So um, this was a great celebration to remind them, hey, we fled and God delivered us. Also, that same night in Egypt, the death angel passed over the houses of the Jews, the Jewish people who had taken the blood of a lamb and put it on their doorway, the death angel passed by them. Of course, we all know that foreshadows our Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, when his blood is on our heart, when we've accepted his sacrifice, God's judgment passes over us, just like the death angel did. That night they were led out of Egypt, out of slavery, as we are when we come to Christ, 
And so this feast involved eating unleavened bread for seven days after they celebrated Passover and ate a sacrificial lamb. The second feast, the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks from the time the sickle is put to grain, seven weeks after Passover, this was involving a free will offering where people would come and out of their joy in their hearts, they would want to give an offering to God as the Lord had blessed them. And everyone was rejoicing. They were again remembering, we once were enslaved. Now look what God's given us. And men were there, women's daughters, servants, Levites in the town, fatherless, widows. Everyone remembering what God had done for them. And then the Feast of Booths. This is when the produce would be gathered up and the wine would be pressed. This was seven days of rejoicing before God and his blessings, how he blessed them. And he blessed the work of their hands. And it says they would be altogether joyful at that time. So these pilgrimage, they were journeys of faith. And it would remind the Jewish people of God's passionate pursuit of them. And then they would get together and they would celebrate that. His blessings, his love, his provision, his deliverance. And that's why this pilgrim in this psalm is yearning to go to Jerusalem. He expected to meet the same God there. The same God who provided and delivered and loved back in the book of Deuteronomy is the same God that they would meet with in the temple, and it would be lovely. The temple in Jerusalem is the God-ordained place of worship now, and when a pilgrim would arrive there, the pilgrim's passion for God would be entwined with God's passion for the pilgrim. And did you notice that uh, this psalmist here is expecting to meet God because he knows the names of God? I pulled out some of the names he says in the verses I just read. He calls him the Lord of hosts, which translates the Yahweh of armies. The armies of men, the armies of angels. So the psalmist knew of God's omnipotence. The living God, the psalmist knew, unlike the false gods of the Gentiles, that Israel's God was living. He created the world. He chose Israel as his people. He provides salvation for the world. He lives eternally in great glory. And the psalmist calls God my king. He had an earthly king, but he would not take the place of his heavenly king. The psalmist knows that only God is the supreme ruler of all. I liked it that the psalmist was even envious of the birds that have the privilege of dwelling in the place of God. They are like the Levites and the other servants in verse 4. These were the people in the temple that lived under the same roof where God himself dwelled. And I thought it was interesting, when you think about swallows, I don't know if you guys have any, my, my daughter has a lot of swallows that nest outside her window. They are a restless bird. I mean, they get to their nest and then they're back off and they get back and then they're gone again and they dart around in the sky and it's a great picture. We are also restless until we get to dwell where God dwells, until we get to rest in his presence, 
And that's what the psalmist envies. He says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. And that means, oh, the great happiness of those that get to dwell in your house. Because God is there. And we get to sing his praises. It's important to remember here that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God did not seal a believer's heart as he does for us today. The Holy Spirit came to indwell individuals at Pentecost after the ascension of Christ. So in the Old Testament, God's Spirit rested on those he chose to use and on those that he chose for other purposes. So you can imagine without God's sealed Spirit living in their hearts, getting to the place where God dwelled, that was crucial, crucial for their faith. So a pilgrim would be eager to get to the temple. And if they were, it showed they were eager to get to God. So this pilgrim was prepared to climb the mountain of God's passion for a couple of reasons. We just saw one, he knew God's commands. He knew about taking these three trips and he wanted to obey and he wanted to celebrate. And two, he knew God's character. I just mentioned all the things he named God that were true about him. And he desired fellowship with that God. We've talked about that a lot in our psalm study about the importance. If we want to deepen our relationship with God, those two things are important. Knowing God's commands, knowing God's character. We get that from here. And as you know, you guys know that, as Ted would say here, I'm preaching to the choir. Because you guys are here. Because you're studying and you're getting to know him in his word. Okay, God's pilgrims today, though, we have a problem. We love our homes. We don't really want to leave them very often. We love our world. We love the fun and the comforts and the things that the world gives us. And they are gifts from God. But slowly, we can sometimes get so comfortable, we forget this world is not my home. If I understand that, I'm going to live a little differently. We can't get that comfortable. There's no way we'll take a trip to the heart of God if we forget we're only pilgrims here. We will only start packing when we have a pilgrim's attitude that this place is not my home. That we were created for something and for someone more important than anything we can experience in this world. I remember when I was a little girl, I was in a church, and I happened to hear two grown men talking about heaven, and I was curious, so I stopped to listen because I didn't really understand it. And I heard the one man say to the other, I am going to play golf every day, all day. And that really confused me. So I thought to myself, so heaven is all about me. And I would guess that this man had pretty much been living each day on earth with his agenda. And he assumed heaven was going to be more of the same thing. Golf is great. Go golfing. But that's not hopefully the focus of your life or where you choose to view your life. As all about me, our focus has to be centered on while I'm here, since I'm only a pilgrim, I'm going to be serving God and I'm going to grab onto his agenda for my life, 
for now and in the future. Look at Acts 17. From one man, God made every nation of men. God did this so that the men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Once we set aside our agenda for our life and we deepen our commitment to God's plans for our lives, we can start packing for a journey into God's heart. But we also have to be sure that we've got the right map in our glove compartment. We have to have God's map. Now here's the most incredible thing I'm going to say all morning. In our age of grace, we don't have to go to a building to seek out God. He's right here. Is that not unbelievable? Never forget that. What an incredible gift from God. Look what 1 John 4 tells us. We live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So what is God's map? We have constant access into the presence of God because of the blood of his son that was shed on the cross. So we take the right map and the map to God's heart always leads us to the cross. Before our faith in God, before our faith in Christ's work on the cross, we were not pilgrims of God. We may have thought we were. We were lost. We were wanderers. Lost in this world. My mom and dad didn't know the Lord until much later in life. And I can remember one day I was playing guitar in in the living room. And my mom came in and said, I've picked out my song that I want you to play at my funeral. The autumn leaves. I don't know if you guys know it. The falling leaves drift past my window. The falling leaves. It's a very somber, sad song. And she would tell me this over the years. At my funeral play, The Autumn Leaves. So many years has gone by now. And I remembered it last year when she was visiting. And I said, am I still playing The Autumn Leaves <laughs> at your funeral? She said, what? No. No. She was lost then. She used to tell me, I know God because he's in this leaf. I know God because he's in this tree. She would not say that anymore. She has a new song to sing. Once we all were lost, in Christ we are found. Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Okay, a true follower of God needs to make sure their map, their map to God is shaped like a cross. There should be no other map in our hands, not a list of our good deeds, not a list of the things we don't do, not a baptism certificate, Not a church membership. The cross of Christ. That's our way to God. No other way. That's where God's map directs us. And that's how we get to his heart. Look at John 14. 
Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then we'll be eager for our journey if we raise our expectations about our destination. Let's use the psalmist as an example here. Wow. He expected so much when he was going to be in the presence of God. And I love it. Because of that, the journey to God, which I can tell you was not an easy trip when they physically went to the temple, it didn't seem like a burden to him. He was looking forward to it. It was a joy. And I thought about, if you tell a child, okay, we're going to drive two days to go to the library. (laughs) Or, we're going to drive two days to go to Disney World. Which one of those are they going to run up and start packing for? The one where they have greater expectations. It is no fun to go to God if you don't expect to get anything out of it. And it's easy to get in that place. If our faith in God has been sitting on a shelf and we don't have any plan to take it off of the shelf, who wants to climb the mountain of his passion? We don't expect it. We don't care. Instead of singing to God without any thought, instead of reading scripture without thought, instead of praying without any thought, and without expecting any change in our lives, what if we did all those things with the great expectation of meeting with the living God, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, like the psalmist did, when we realize our destination is unbelievable. The friendship of God himself. One of my favorite songs goes like this. I will arise. I will go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior. Lord there are 10,000 charms. What if we believed that? Wouldn't we go so much quicker? Wouldn't we pack so much faster? What if we believed that if we grew our passion for God, our lives would be transformed? We would be better. We would be satisfied. We would be complete. Then we'd want to go on that journey. Isaiah 64 tells us, Since ancient times no one has heard, No ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. When we believe that, we will be packed and ready to go on a pilgrimage to God. And when we get to that place, we will find that we are now on the path of pursuit. Look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, each one appearing before God in Zion. So the Old Testament pilgrim, he's now describing travelers on their path of pursuit. They're heading to the temple, and they are happy travelers. They aren't like our kids in the backseat. Are we there yet? Are we there? They are happy travelers. They are excited. I want us to envision this sort of caravan of pilgrims 
They're talking. They're sharing. They're probably singing. They're praying together on their way to the temple. It's long. It's hard. It's actually a dangerous trip. And they're joyful. Why? Because they go in the strength of God. Where does that strength come from? The faith that lives in their hearts. Israel's faith in God. It's the strength that sets them on a blessed highway to Jerusalem. And we see God blessing them all along the way. They even come into a valley, um, a uh, desolate valley called Baca. And Baca is a Hebrew word. It means balsam tree. It also means weeping because the sap of the balsam tree looked like tears on the trunks of the tree. So these, this was known to be a valley of sorrows. Some people believe this is possibly the area where both Saul and his son Jonathan lost their lives. Not a happy place. And it was a parched place that, that because of the presence of these happy pilgrims, would become instead a place of springs. And this place of sorrow with the pilgrim's presence, it would become a place of joy. And I believe it's because their faith was so alive. They were so excited and together in his presence. Even for us, a place of weeping can become a place of joy. And then we can envision new pilgrims joining in, joining them on the journey as they came near their towns. Hey, Ezra, come on over here. And they'd all join together and share their enthusiasm. So they were getting stronger from strength to strength, all going to God, not out of obligation, but out of desire. And once there, one of their priorities was to pray for their earthly king because the king of kings anointed their earthly king to be their spiritual leader. Look at verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Do you notice they approach God based on God's covenant with Israel that he would bless their nation? We can tell they're doing it because they call him the God of Jacob here. And Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they pray for their king because the future of Israel rested upon the coming of the Messiah. And he was to come from the line of King David. And in that way, the king is a shield of protection for all of Israel. For God's pilgrim today, verse 5, I love it. Happy are those whose hearts are highways to God. This is a verse about you and me. This is about us getting to where God is. And the highway to him is in our hearts. Like all pilgrims of faith, we learn to rely on God's strength for our spiritual journey. We can't do it on our own strength. When I was a 10th grader, I had the um, wonderful privilege of going to Frontier Ranch, Young Life's Frontier Ranch in Colorado. Does anyone else in here go to that camp? Yay, see? Okay, did any of you climb the high country mountain day? Was it like the worst experience you've ever had? No. Oh, my gosh. It was horrible for me. Okay, they have this high country day. The entire camp... 
is abandoned. Everyone's going to climb this mountain. Now, you guys, this is, I think, a 14,000, I'm not sorry. Yeah, 14,000 foot mountain. Yeah, it's crazy. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Of course, we're unsuspecting. I'm from Chicago, unsuspecting going to a camp in my flip-flops, and I'm supposed to climb this giant mountain. So it, it took all day long. I think the camp people just wanted to just wear us out to where we wouldn't move for like 24 hours. So I can remember trying to do that. Now, if you have the privilege of being a summer camper leader that stayed all summer, think about it. You had to do that climb every week. So when Ted was in that position, he would like make dentist appointments on the high country day. (laughs) They never let him keep them, but he would try. The only reason I got to the top was I had some friends really helping me along the way and got me to the top because they wanted me to succeed. When you want to know God more, does he want you to succeed? Is he going to be your strength for you? Absolutely. He will be your strength. He loves it that you're climbing his mountain of passion so you can get to know him better. He's your strength. One step at a time, strength to strength, we will become better fitted for advancing towards God. And we don't have time to get into it, but did you notice he's also going to use other pilgrims in our lives they are making the same journey. We encourage each other. We support each other. We pray for each other. One man said this, there is a cheering progress in the spiritual life of the righteous. I loved it. There is a cheering progress in the spiritual life of the righteous, and God is the head cheerleader. He's our strength. Look at Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I know that on this journey to know God, we're going to go through many valleys of sorrow. People who love God expect to go through those valleys, but we don't expect to stay there. We don't expect to stay there. We expect God to bless us in that valley in some way that we don't know how that's going to happen, and then we move on, and we make it a better place of blessing for the next person, the next pilgrim that comes along. Our hurts... Our valleys, God takes us through so we can go to the people behind us and encourage them in the same way that he encouraged us. So our times of desolation, our sadness, I call these dry times spiritually, will somehow be used by God to refresh us, to refresh our faith and then encourage others to stay on the path of faith behind us. Even valleys of affliction can become springs of abundance when we're pursuing God. 1 Peter 5.10 tells us, 
After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I was thinking what it would be like to be the pilgrims traveling to the temple. What it must have felt like when they turn through a valley and there's the temple in the distance in front of them. Don't you know that all those things that seemed hard to deal with getting there, they forgot them. They had their eyes on the temple. The joy of being with God was greater than dwelling on being in the valley of sorrow. They moved forward. And as we draw closer to the heart of God, the trials on our journey are replaced with the joy of seeing not a temple, but seeing God in a new way that we'd never seen him before. And guess what? That's going to happen until we meet him face to face. Every day he's going to be new to us if we're on the path of pursuit. Every day we're going to learn more. Every day his passions are going to touch our heart more. We'll begin to care about new things. We'll begin to do new things. We'll begin to stop doing wrong things. We begin to hold what is holy, all that God holds holy. We will call those things holy. Think about it. When the pilgrims arrived in the temple, they lifted up their prayers for the king. Why? Because God cared about the king. When we're closer to God, we're going to care about the things God cares about, and we're going to realize I'm praying about things in a new way that I haven't prayed about before because I'm on this path. And as we grow closer to God, we can celebrate God's passionate promises but we continually have to remind ourselves to turn away from the sins that keep his promises uh, from becoming fruition in our life let's look at verse 10 for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere i would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my god than dwell in the tents of wickedness So the root of all wickedness lies in shunning fellowship with God. That's what we see here. We can picture the people in these tents. They've made a choice. They are outside of the temple grounds. And the psalmist is saying, I'd rather take a menial job in the temple, standing at the threshold of the temple, than living in the luxury of the tents of those people who shun fellowship with God. When we look at the temple here, it resembles God's permanent glory and all that is good about God. When we look at a tent, we realize it's just a temporary pleasure. It's not lasting. So to come near to the heart of God, we have to separate ourselves from the sin that keeps us outside of God's goodness. We stop trying to be satisfied with all the things that are temporarily pleasures in our life that are selfish. We decide to come out of our tents. And we're going to have to come out of our tents all along our path until we get to be with God because it's so easy to become comfortable in our sins. We have to remind ourselves, this is temporary, this is selfish, I'm shunning fellowship with God I'm going to come out of my tent and draw near to him. 
And why is the psalmist able to do that? Why is he able to stay out of the tents? I love this. Look at verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Here's why it it's, makes so much sense to be in fellowship in pursuit of God. Because drawing near to God, we discover he provides everything we will ever need. Not everything we will want, but everything we will need that's the best for us, that will bless us. And you can't know that truth unless you're getting to the heart of God. You look for the world to meet those other needs. You have to be on the path to God. He says, he is a son. He sustains our life. He is a source of light in our life. This refers to our sanctification. God as our son. He is our shield, our divine protector. And this refers to justification. His justification is like a shield around our lives. All of our sins are bounced off by his mercy through Christ in our life. He bestows favor and honor on our spiritual pilgrimage throughout our life. Favor being the grace of God. Honor being the glory of God. And I thought God will give us grace for life's journey and glory when our journey ends. Life can be hard, it can be filled with heartache, but we have to keep this truth alive in our hearts that God has prepared grace for us while we're on earth and glory with him tomorrow. That's the passion of God. That's our joy. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. One man said, all the treasures of the gospel are contained in this verse. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly? We have the sun. We have the shield. We can walk uprightly in faith with his strength. Look what First Peter 1 says. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The last line in this psalm, I would sort of uh, paraphrase it to say this. Oh, the happiness of the pilgrim that trusts in our passionate God. What happiness there is for us. Look at 147 on your verse sheet. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope, in his unfailing love. I want to close with this little poem. It can be a prayer of ours. It's called At the Crossroads. The stars are gone out spark by spark. A cock crows up the cloudy lane. A cart toils creaking through the dark. Lord, in your sight all roads are plain. Or they run up and down, sheep tracks, highways to town, or even that little one beneath the hedge where seldom falls the sun. And if it were light, I might go west, or I would go east across the land, but it's dark and I need rest. Till morn breaks forth on every hand, Lord, you choose for me. 
the road that runs to thee. We grow a passion for God by pursuing his passion for us. Let me pray. Lord, though we were sinners and are sinners, you pursue us. You provide all we need to fill our lives with every good thing. We give you praise for that. We praise you for this week, the way you display your passion through your son. We thank you and we come humbly before you. And we ask that this week we walk in your strength, we sing your songs, we remember all good things come from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.